if you have your Bibles. And I hope that you do because we're going to be turning in them to a number of different places this morning. But if you have them, we're going to start out in Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Thus far in our study of the letter to the Philippians, we've seen Paul doing a number of different things, teaching a number of different truths. He's taught this church how to have unwavering confidence that will never change, even in the midst of your own sin and struggles and trials and suffering, that no matter what comes, we know that God who began the good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We know that without a shadow of a doubt. We also saw that Paul's mindset in the middle of his suffering, in the midst of being in jail and persecuted and suffering for Christ, he had joy, showing us that it's not dependent upon your circumstances, whether you'll be happy or whether you'll be sad. It's dependent upon your standing before the God of the universe, and Paul knows that his standing is sure. He is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He gave us the philosophy of his life, to live is Christ, to die is gain, that he, he knew no matter what comes, whether by life or by death, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body because to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We saw how to appropriate that into our own lives so that those words could be our philosophy for living life. Before Christmas, we looked at verse 27 of chapter 1, where Paul is pleading with the Philippian church to stand firm in one spirit, stand firm with one mind, strive together with one heart for the unity in the gospel, for the faith in the gospel, pleading with them to be unified. And you remember that there were really no issues going on in this church save one. No doctrinal issues that needed to be addressed, no issues of um, doctrine that were wrong or heretical that the church was believing. No, it was a great church grounded and rooted in the truth. And Paul knew, I don't don't really need to work on the the theology here or the doctrine to correct something like I have to do with the Galatians or to the Ephesians or Colossians. But instead, there was one issue, and it seems like a small issue, but it's really one of the main reasons why Paul wrote this letter. That's the issue of unity or the lack thereof. You remember there were two women that were bickering and squabbling, and Paul is saying, please stop. Be unified together. And so in chapter 2, as we're going to look at this morning, he's going to start speaking about how to develop unity together. But I want to start in Proverbs chapter 6 by showing you that God does not tolerate it when we seek to divide or when we are used by the devil himself to divide a church. It starts in our families, it starts in our homes, and then it goes into our friends, and then it goes into the church, and before you know it, churches split over issues of disunity, and it's always a matter of personal preference. It's always a matter of, I like this color for the carpets, or I like this color for um, the podium or the pulpit. Proverbs chapter 6 Turn to verse 16. You know these verses. It says, There are six things which the Lord hates, yet seven which are an abomination to him. All the writer is saying is, These are things that God detests, that God absolutely abhors, that God hates. What are they? Verse 17, They are haughty eyes, prideful eyes that look at everything 
from a higher perspective, saying, I'm better than all of you. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies. And you might say, well, I'm doing pretty good. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't shed innocent blood. And of course, we'd have to go to Jesus's words where he said, if you even look at somebody with lust or look at somebody with anger, it's as if you've committed adultery in your heart. It's as if you've murdered in your heart. So you say, okay, maybe I struggle with pride a little bit, but I'm working on it. Maybe I've struggled with lying, but I'm working on it as well. And my feet don't seem to run too rapidly to evil. My feet don't really seem to run rapidly at all. So I think I'm okay. The end of verse 19 is the seventh thing that God detests. My Bible says, one who spreads strife among brothers. One who becomes a cancer in the midst of brothers and starts dividing, turning them upon each other. So it's brother against brother, kind of a civil war-esque battle and war. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is going to speak specifically to this issue of unity and plead with the Philippian church and I believe with our church this morning to be unified. Philippians chapter 2, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2. One pastor says it this way, the, the one danger which threatened the Philippian church was that of disunity. There is a sense in which that is the danger of every healthy church is when people are really in earnest, when their beliefs really matter to them, that they are apt to get up against each other. They're greater, the greater their enthusiasm, the greater the danger that they may collide. And it's against that danger that Paul wishes to safeguard his friends. Paul's concern here is not about doctrines, ideas, or practices that are clearly unbiblical. It's about interpretation, standards, interests, preferences, and the like that are largely matters of personal choice. Such issues should never be allowed to foment controversy within the body of Christ. To insist on one's own way in such things is sinful because it senselessly divides believers. It reflects a prideful desire to promote one's personal views, styles, or agendas. Believers must never, of course, compromise doctrines or principles that are clearly biblical, but to humbly defer to one another on secondary issues is a matter of spiritual strength, not weakness. It is a mark of maturity and love that God highly honors because it promotes and preserves harmony in his church. Paul is seeking to make sure that the church in Philippi has harmony, that nothing can separate them, that nothing can destroy them or rip them apart. In the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, any kingdom that's divided against itself or any house that's divided against itself cannot stand but instead is laid to waste. And so Paul is going to speak in these verses of the unity that we must have to succeed in gospel ministry, the unity we must have to glorify the Lord, the unity we must have to preserve that fellowship and bond in Christ. We're going to look this morning at the foundation for unity in verse 1, and I believe we'll also be able to get to the effects of that foundation found in verse 2. We're going to lay a foundation that Paul's going to give us of just four simple points that give us the main foundation of how we are supposed to be unified, why we can be unified together. And then once that foundation is laid, then we're going to build on it with marks of unity, what it looks like to actually be unified together. The goal in all of this, 
as 1 Timothy 1, 5 says, is love from a pure heart. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, that the root and the fruit of unity would grow clearly from the gospel as we study God's word this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 reads this, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Right before Christmas, if you remember, we looked at Mary's Magnificat, and we looked at three ways that God responds to humble people and three ways that God responds to prideful people, because we talked about how pride is the greatest enemy to unity. And if we are to be unified at Christ Bible Church, we need to be utterly humble and live out humility, gospel humility with each other. And that's where Paul's going to begin by laying us to waste so that we see we have nothing as far as deservings are concerned before God, but he graciously has given, given us all things through Christ. Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 2 by laying the foundation of unity, and he starts by saying, therefore, based on everything that I talked about in chapter 1, then he uses this word, if there is any encouragement, if there is any consolation, if there is any fellowship, and if there is any affection and compassion. That word, if, in the English sounds like it might be unsure. If this potentially could be the case, but maybe it's not. Maybe this is conditioned upon something else. So if this is the case for you, but if it's not, too bad. But in the Greek, it is ambiguous. It's not conditioned upon something to say, well, if you have this, hopefully you do. But if you don't, tough luck. In the Greek, it's very clear. You could put in your Bibles, therefore, since you have encouragement in Christ. And since, not if, since you have consolation of love, since you have fellowship in the Spirit, and since you have affection and compassion, then you can live this way. He lays the foundation for us by giving us four senses, if you will. You can see if, 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 four different times, since, 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 since. The first one, we'll just take these as we go. So four foundations for our unity in Jesus Christ. Number one, we have encouragement in Christ. We have encouragement in Christ. If we're to have unity together, we have to lay the foundation, and the first aspect of that foundation is our encouragement in Christ. My Bible says encouragement. Some translations might say comfort in Christ. This word is often translated comfort. Um, this is the word where when Jesus speaks of sending a helper once he leaves, that word helper, a comforter, paraclete, um, that is the word here, a comforter, a helper, somebody who comes alongside you and in the midst of your difficulties comforts and encourages you. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want you to see a couple different places where this word is used and specifically the context in which it's used. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16 now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, 
comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. That's the same word that we find in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Comfort, encourage. You have comfort in Christ. You have encouragement in Christ. What is the encouragement? What is the comfort that we are given in Jesus Christ? What does Paul have in mind here? I believe that it's based on the salvation that we have in Jesus. That though we were enemies, Romans chapter 5, verse 10, we were enemies, we were hostile to God. While we were sinners, Christ died for us and turned his enemy into his friend. Just as um, Brian said this morning, we did not come in a theological sense to an understanding of the gospel because we really wanted to believe in Jesus Christ. Saul, or the Apostle Paul, is an amazing picture of this. Coming into the kingdom, kicking and screaming, the greatest enemy of Jesus Christ, persecuting Jesus, persecuting his disciples and his followers, putting them to death. And Jesus says, though you are my enemy, I will make you my friend. And as God befriends us and comforts us, he changes our hearts and our affections to then love him. We cannot say we loved him first. We ran to him first. Yes, it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance, and it's that love that pulls us to himself and changes our affections. We must say that we love him only because he first, what? Loved us. He comforted us. He came in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our evil, in the midst of our wickedness. He came and he died. I love the the words in the hymn, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, not just a a tiny aspect of it, as if God did away with one part, but now I have to keep on working to burn off more sin and burn off more sin. No, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Therefore, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And it is well. I am comforted. I'm at peace It is well with my soul because of the cross. We were restless in the words of Augustine. We were made for Christ. We were made for God and our souls were restless, searching, looking and unable to find because we were enemies and God was stiff arming us and we wanted nothing to do with him. We were restless until he comforted us. As I was thinking through this idea of being restless or being comforted, There are so many examples that just popped up to my mind, and and the bottom line is none of them fit the reality. I was thinking about one time when I was driving on the freeway, and um, lights are going on behind me, and I'm thinking, oh no, I can't afford a ticket. This is no good. Can't have this on my record. I pull over, and you get that immediate pit in the stomach feeling where you're just breaking out in a sweat, and your face turns all red, and you're, "What, what did I do? And officer comes up, rolled down my window. I'm so sorry, officer. What did I do? Oh, no worries. I just want to let you know that it looks like your tire's leaking and you might want to get it fixed. And there's a gas station right here that has uh, air for free and you'll be okay. Instantly comforted, right? Instant, oh, relief. Thank you. I'm not in, tr- I'm not in trouble? No, no, no. Thank you. I'm not in trouble. What about that feeling when you lost your car keys and you cannot find them anywhere? 
and your deadline is coming up and now it's past due and you're, I got to get out of here. I got to go. And you can't find your keys. And then all of a sudden you find them. Oh, peace, comfort. Or when my daughter, her, her grandma got her a swing set and she thinks she can do the swing set all by herself and she'll jump on it and flop off and she'll start crying and, and she'll cry out as she's crying, Daddy, Mommy. And then when Mommy comes and picks her up, she just kind of whimpers but puts her head down and, and she's fine, comforted. But you see, all of those examples fall incredibly short because the reality is that we were comforted when we were were about to experience eternal, infinite wrath. So losing your car keys, misplacing your car keys, or not getting a ticket, it doesn't compare to infinite wrath. And God said, you know what? I love you. I want to glorify my name, and I will send my son and crush him in your place so that you can now come and sit in my lap and call me Abba, Father, call me Daddy. And there's no condemnation for you to fear. That is the comfort or the encouragement that we have in Christ. If we are to be unified together, we must have that foundation, one aspect of the foundation laid. We must have comfort in Christ. Secondly, we must have consolation of love. Consolation of love. This is similar to the first aspect, encouragement or comfort in Christ. Consolation of love, you know, consoling somebody in the midst of their distress. You put an arm around them. They can cry on your shoulder. You can tell them it is going to be okay because you can say it is well, even though it's difficult. And you can cry and we can mourn and we can weep. But we are crying and mourning and weeping as those who have hope. This is somebody coming alongside you and giving you a hug in the midst of your greatest distress, and that's exactly what God did. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14 says this, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. The love of God that consoles you, the love of the Father that consoles you, And notice Paul puts a very Trinitarian spin on these verses by saying it's the grace of Jesus, it's the love of the Father, and it's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And I believe back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, we see that same Trinitarian aspect. It's the encouragement or the comfort in Jesus, it's the consolation of love through the Father, and it's the fellowship of the Spirit. And through all three of those aspects, we receive affection and compassion. God loved us with a consoling love that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And that is to console us even in the greatest of life's difficulties. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. We can only love him because he first loved us. So if we are loving him, then we know that he's loved us to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So what then shall we say to these things, to the persecution, to the suffering, to the distressing, to all the things going on based on the truth 
that God loves us and causes all things to work together for our good and his glory. What are we going to say? If, and that's the same if that's found in Philippians chapter 2, since God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Since God did the hardest thing by crushing his son and giving his son up for us, then anything after giving his son up for us is an easy thing compared to that first most challenging thing to give up his son. You say, well, you don't understand. People are coming constantly and attacking me and condemning me and you don't even know the condemnation that, are, that I feel even without anybody looking at me or talking to me. The condemnation I feel in my own soul before the Lord as I hear Satan's voice in my ear, so to speak, preaching out, look at what you've done, look at what you've done, look at what you've done. How can you say you love God? Verse 33, who's going to bring a charge against you? Can Satan bring a charge against you? Yeah, but will it stand? No. God is the one who justifies so who's the one who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He's praying for us. He's consoling us in his love. So who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Who's going to do it? Is it going to be circumstance, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Just as it is written, verse 36, for your sake we are putting, being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God consoles us. Notice it's not that Jesus has his arm around us saying, yeah, you sin, but I'm just going to kind of turn the other way and it's really okay and don't worry about it. We all make mistakes. That's the kind of love that a lot of evangelicalism believes in. You sinned, but it's really just a mistake and it's really just a bummer and, and everybody makes whoops like that, so it's okay. Notice that God did not console us by saying, no big deal. I'll turn a blind eye to it. God consoles us by pointing our eyes at the cross and saying, I love you so much that I would kill my son. So that not only would the sin be removed, but now you would become my friend and be reconciled to me. It's not just that we've been justified. It's not just that we've been forgiven. It's not just that we've been cleansed. It's that we've been reconciled to be friends with the God of the universe. And so God points to his son and say, yes, your sin was worthy of that. It was worthy of death. And he died so you could go free and become my son or my daughter. And now there's no condemnation for you to fear. But notice, turn to 1 John. The consolation of God's love does not end by us receiving it and saying, great, everything is peachy keen and we'll be okay from this point on. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. I always remember this because you have John 3, 16, you know, most famous verse in the Bible probably. 
And then you have 1 John 3.16 that tells us what we must do with the love that God has for us in John 3.16. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. So what are we supposed to do with that kind of love? 1 John 3.16 says this, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We don't look at the love of Christ and say, great, I've been loved by the God of the universe and then I don't have to do anything. We are united as brothers and sisters in the love of God, by the love of God, and we must share that love with each other. We must share that love with each other. So Paul writes the first aspect of the foundation that we must have in order for unity to be existent in a church is encouragement in Christ, comfort in Jesus. The second aspect is we must have consolation of love, that God the Father would wrap his arm around us in the midst of our sin and distress and say, you are mine. I died for you, that now you might show that love to others. Thirdly, we must have fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship of the Spirit. We've already seen this word fellowship before. It means partnering together. Greatest example of this in a, a contemporary cultural setting is the Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. They gather together with one purpose, intent on one thing, and they will not let anything come between them and the purpose that they have to get that ring over to Mordor and destroy it. At least I believe that's the way it's supposed to go. God has given us in the Spirit one purpose. We're partnering together in fellowship with one goal. And Paul's going to tell us what that goal is in verse 2. He's already told us what that goal is in chapter 1. But we're partners together. We are a band of brothers fighting against an enemy. And the enemy is not each other. No matter how many times it might feel that way or seem that way, we are not enemies. The enemy is the devil. The enemy is our sinful flesh. But the enemy is not our brother and sister that's here in this room right now. We are partners together in the Spirit. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, you can just write it down, says this, You are partners in fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and because of that, with each other. Because we are partners with the Holy Spirit, we are partners with each other. One place I would like you to turn is Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Sounds similar to the language in Philippians chapter 1, that I'm asking, I'm pleading with you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, which is the calling to which you've been called. And then he says this, verse 2, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The only reason Paul would have to write that we must be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is because that bond of peace and that unity that we have together in the Spirit is constantly under attack. And so he says, be aware, be on your guard, and be diligent not to let the enemy win the day by breaking apart that bond of peace by being divisive and enabling you not to preserve the unity of the Spirit. 
We have comfort in Christ. We've been comforted. We've been consoled in Jesus Christ and by the Father himself. We have fellowship in the Spirit. And fourth, and finally, to lay the foundation of our unity, we have affection and compassion. Paul says we have comfort in Christ. We have consolation in the Father and his love. We have fellowship in the Spirit. And therefore, because of those three things, we have affection and compassion. Affection is used in the Bible many times to speak of a mother's love for their child. It's used to speak of feelings in the heart that come out through actions. It's used in Luke chapter 15 when the father is affected, has affections for his son and is moved to go run and chase down his prodigal son. We have affection in Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think, for me, maybe you're like me, but sometimes I think that God's love is very academic and it becomes just a theological heady, um, he loves us. And I know he loves us, that even in my sin, he befriended me and made me his, uh, who, who was his enemy, made me his friend. But there is a very real sense where God has affections for you. God loves you with the love of a father, and not just any father, a perfect father. We have affection from the God of the universe towards us, messed up, unworthy, puny little sinners that David would say, what am I that you're mindful of me? Why would you even care about noticing me or looking at me? And God says, I don't just notice you. I don't just look at you. I have affections for you. I love you. And that love that God has for us in his affections is also in his compassion, Paul says. It's interesting, this word is only used in the New Testament to speak of God's compassion for us. There's another word that can be used to describe compassion that humans have on each other. But this word that Paul is using here is specifically only used in the New Testament to speak of God's mercies for sinners. It's the word that's found in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that the compassions of God, God's saving mercy, we could call it. It's ours through Jesus, not because of our deserving, not because we're awesome, not because we've done anything righteous, not because we could earn it or ever will be able to, but because Jesus in his love was obedient to the Father, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserved, offered us that newness of life when he raised from the dead. And now God is no longer our enemy, but our friend. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of these things, all of these four aspects of the foundation of unity were only given to us through the cross. Only through the cross. And if we enjoy such incredible spiritual realities through the cross, we must show those kind of realities to others. We must. Jim Boyce says it this way, as you seek to do this, as you seek to love others with the love that Christ has given to you, always remember that your love is to be patterned on God's love. In fact, your love is actually to be an outpouring of his love, though you, as you are transformed by the indwelling of the presence of the Spirit, are given an understanding of his love for you to give to others. Jesus taught this to his disciples just before his crucifixion. He said this, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
this statement from our Lord leaves no room for qualification. Love one another unless they are, fill in the blank, really unlovely, really difficult to get along with. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. That's it. No qualification, and he is the example of no qualification because he speaks, love one another just as I have loved you, right after he washed Judas's feet. He washes all of the disciples' feet, and he includes the betrayer. And it says that he loved them to the end. No qualification on our love. So Jim Boyce finishes by saying, your love for other Christians must be like Christ's love for you. Must be like Christ's love for you. That's the foundation. If we are to be unified together at Christ Bible Church, we must lay a foundation for that unity that's found in the Bible. We have encouragement in Christ. We have a consolation of love by the Father. We have fellowship and partnership in the Spirit, and we have affection and compassion that's ours through Jesus Christ. So now that the foundation has been laid, let's look from the the cause to the effect. If the foundation is laid, what does it produce in us? If we have these things as our own, and as Paul would say, since we have these things as our own, since we have the very love of the God of the universe for us, towards us, on our side, what should it produce? What should it produce? He starts in verse 2 by saying this, since you have these things, make my joy complete. It sounds like his joy is incomplete, and that's not quite right because the the Greek word here is um, fill me to overflowing. I'm already filled up to the brim. Now just overflow me with joy and with happiness and with uh, affection for you. Make my joy complete. Not that it's incomplete, but make it overflow. And I love that he uses that word because he already told us in chapter 1, my joy is complete in the Lord. I'm fine even though I'm in stocks. I'm fine even though I have been persecuted for Christ. It's okay with me because my joy is not circumstantially based. My joy is spiritually based. And so he pleads with this church, overflow my joy by allowing me to hear that you are unified, that nothing is coming between you. And so he says this, these are the four marks of unity. What unity really is at its essence And once the foundation of unity is laid, this is what will come out. Once we know the cross is ours and the love of Jesus Christ is ours, these are the things that will come out. Number one, we will be of the same mind. We will be of the same mind. This word is used 26 times in the New Testament. And it's used 22 of those 26 times by Paul, and it's used 10 of those 22 times in the book of Philippians. Remember how at the very beginning of our study, we talked about how Philippians is a book whose theme is unity and love and togetherness? 10 of the 22 times that Paul uses this word are found here in Philippians, in the book of Philippians. He says literally that these words could be, think the same thing. Think the exact same thing. Don't be thinking other things. Don't be thinking different things. Think on the same thing. If you turn just a couple chapters over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche, these two women that are really struggling to get along, to live in harmony in the Lord. My Bible says live in harmony. Those are the exact same Greek words that we find in Chapter 2, verse 2, be of the same mind. 
Don't be divided in your thoughts and so live in disunity. Be of the same mind. Be of the same thinking. Unity, when you bring it down to its essence, is thinking the same way that leads to living the same way. And so Paul says, don't think about different things. Don't let your mind be distracted by going to other opinions or by going for what you think is right or what you want to see happen in the church. We can only guess at what Yodi and Sintiki are arguing about. Maybe it's the um, style of clothing that one of them is wearing versus the other one. Maybe they're arguing over the kind of songs that are being sung when they gather on the Lord's Day, and one is for old traditional tunes and one is for contemporary tunes. It's interesting to think that you know, 30 A.D., 40 A.D. could have been contemporary back then. Oh, this is a brand new song. Whatever their argument, the bottom line is when you, get, you boil it down to the very essence of their disunity. They were thinking two different things that led them away from being unified. Paul says, think the same way. Be of the same mind. And I believe that these next three points that Paul's going to make in, in verse 2 really show what it means to think the same way. They can kind of come under the umbrella of being of the same mind. He says, if you are of the same mind, then you will maintain the same love. If the foundation of unity is laid, those four points that we looked at at the very beginning of our morning together, if those four points are laid and that foundation of unity is laid, then you will have one mind, you will think the same thing, and you also have one love. You also have one love. Being of the same love, maintaining the same love, agape, that word for love there, agape, unconditional, self-sacrificial. Let me give you a couple different definitions that certain pastors have given to this word agape. Agape love is a love of choice. Agape love is an unselfish, self-sacrificing desire to meet the needs of the cherished object. Agape love is when someone else's needs are more important than your own. Agape love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. The bottom line is that a common commitment to love each other with that kind of self-sacrificial love is the soil in which unity is going to grow. Who is it in your life that you struggle to love with agape love? Usually, it's those that are closest to us. Familiarity breeds some sort of contempt in our lives, and whether it's our spouse or our kids or family members, extended relatives, those are the ones that we struggle to love with the kind of love that Jesus has given to us. But Paul says, please, Make a commitment to love one another with the same kind of love that Jesus has given to you. Why is that important? Why should we do it? Why can't we just throw in the towel and say, that's really hard to do, Paul. You don't understand. You don't know who my siblings are. You don't know who my parents are. You don't know who my kids are. I should get a free pass on this one. Why should it be imperative for us to live with the love of Jesus Christ towards each other? Number one, because Christ commanded it, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that as I have loved you, you love others also. It wasn't a new command to love one another. Have you ever stopped and thought through, what's the newness of that new command? Because we'd been told all the way from Genesis, uh, love one another. Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God and love people. 
That's the, that's the entire law summed up. Love God, love people. So this isn't new. What's the newness of this command? The newness of this command is the origin of the love, where it's going to come from. You used to love just because you knew God loved you, and you knew that you had to do that with others. But now you can love each other the way that I am going to love you by dying on a cross. That had never happened before. The Son of God had never been murdered on a cross. So the newness of the new commandment is in the same way that I love you, now you must love others. Now there's a new pattern for you to love. Love this way. Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, our hearts are knit together in love. What a beautiful picture, knit together. The more that we love each other, the more thread and needle is put in there that's knit together so that it's harder to rip it apart. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Without love, we will always be squabbling and arguing, but with love, we will be perfectly unified. How do we live this out? What does it look like? 1 Corinthians 13, if we had time, we'd turn there, but you know that passage. We must be patient. We must be kind. We must not be jealous when others get something that you want. We must believe the best about people until we see hard and fast evidence that we're wrong. We must serve each other. Galatians 5, 13, serve one another through love. Meet needs. 1 John 3, 17 through 18, meet the needs of those around you. 1 Peter 4, verse 8, be fervent in your love because love covers a multitude of sins. But there's a warning in all of this. There's a warning in all of this, and it comes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. Just write it down. We don't have to turn there, but 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says this, He who does not love his brother abides in death. You say, why should we love one another? Well, John would say, because if you aren't loving your brother or your sister, then maybe you're not genuinely saved. Maybe you're not genuinely saved. Because how can somebody who has been forgiven so much, who hated God and yet God befriended you, how could you go out to somebody next to you and say, I hate you. I don't want anything to do with you. Get away from me. How is that possible to be loved by the God of the universe through the cross and then to go out and say, I don't want to be with you. I don't care about you. Paul says we must be of the same mind, think the same way. We must maintain the same love. Thirdly, if we're going to have the foundation laid and then grow in unity, the third way that that's going to look, the third effect of that foundation of unity is going to be we're going to be united in spirit. We're going to have the same spirit, united in our essence, in who we are, united in spirit. This is a difficult word to translate because it's used only here in the entire New Testament. In fact, a lot of commentators think Paul just made this word up. It literally means one-souled, one-souled. We saw something similar to this in chapter 1, but I think the best way to illustrate the idea of being one-souled is marriage. When two become one flesh, when, when you come to the place where you can begin to finish each other's sentences, when you speak the same way, when you love the same thing, one ancient tombstone um, where, two, where a couple, uh, two humans were buried, a husband and a wife were buried, 
said this, we spoke the same things, we thought the same things, and we go inseparably to the grave. Your soulmates. Are we soulmates together in this church? Are we soulmates in a way where I would die for you and I'm thinking the same thing that you're thinking and I'm loving the same thing you're loving and I'm focused on the same thing you're focused on? That's number four. Not only united in spirit in the same essence, but also intent on one purpose, focused on one thing. Having a common cause unites people together. And Paul is saying, I have a common cause that I'm living for and you need to have a common cause as well. And what is our common cause? It's the gospel. It's living to glorify God through our lives aligning with obedience with the gospel and through others coming into obedience to Jesus Christ. That is our common cause. Jim Boyce says it this way. Have you experienced this kind of love? The love of Jesus Christ? If you are a believer, you have understood something of its meaning. Does God cast away the one who offends him? Does God cast away the one who makes a doctrinal mistake? Does God cast away the one who sins? No, on the contrary, his love reaches out even further as he seeks to draw the sinner to himself. That love must flow through you, and it must be your pattern. It must be your incentive as you live with other Christians. In light of these two verses, it is clear that Paul is appealing to the believer's experience of mercy from God. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have experienced God's compassion and mercy. You deserve hell, yet he loved you and died for you. He leads you in this life and will, will yet lead you to heaven. Oh, we have known such great mercy. So how then can we fail to show compassion to those who also confess Christ's name, even though they might have offended us? How can we fail to show that kind of love to others? What is the foundation of our unity? It's the cross. And when we stare at the cross and, and let the cross and the love of Jesus Christ shown to us on the cross be our foundation, then we will live out these four principles of unity. We will be of the same mind. We will maintain the same love. We will be united in spirit and we will be intent on one purpose. But we have to go back to the root. Is your fruit struggling? Is the fruit of your love for one another ripe? beautiful, tasty, or is the fruit of your love for one another bitter, dying, decaying? Don't just stare at the love and say, well, I need to fix this so that I can love others more. Let's go all the way down into the tree. Let's go all the way down into the roots and stare at the love that Jesus has for us. If you struggle with love for one another, the best place, the first place, the last place, the only place you must turn is the cross of Christ. And so what I want to do with the time that we have remaining is do that together. I want us to stare at the cross together. I want us to look with the, the words that we know in Scripture and the words that we sing from Scripture. I want us to look 
down that tunnel of time and see our Savior murdered on a cross, crying out, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. With love on a cross, speaking to his mother in his darkest hour, still caring about his mother and saying, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. I want to make sure you're taken care of. In his darkest hour, comforting and assuring a thief on a cross who at one time had been ridiculing him, but then turned and said, you don't deserve what you're getting. We do, but you don't. And Jesus said today, truly, I promise you, you will be with me in paradise. You're going to be with me. Let me console you in my love. He was forsaken. And then he said at the very end, it is finished. It's done paid in full, nothing for you to do but to rest. Let's stare at the love of Christ, and in doing so, let's grow genuine Christ-like affection for one another so that our church would be a church unified together with the foundation of the cross always being there. If we ever struggle, let's go back and stare at Calvary. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the cross. There are no words that can truly represent how we feel when we stare at the majesty and the horror, when we stare at the glory and the evil of what was going on at the cross. The only words that we can say are what we've already sung this morning. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. So, O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. As we sing, God, I pray that the reality of who we were before you, apart from you, your enemy, God-haters, and yet you, in your grace, turned us from hatred towards you to a love for you. Encourage our hearts now as we stare at Calvary, and may the love that you have for us flow through to all the relationships that we have. May we love them with the love of Christ.